Good morning. Welcome back to another virtual Sunday morning at Watermark. Um, happy Father's Day. Uh, I hope your Father's Day is amazing. I decided to wear my Father's Day shirt today. Um, and I'm going to be eating some brats and some, and some sauerkraut and mustard. It's going to be amazing. Uh, today, we are in um, Acts chapter 9. We're in verse 7 through 19. Um, I'll start off by reading today's passage and, uh, and then we'll pray and then we'll jump into this. I, I, uh, I'm going in a different direction today. I'm going to be channeling old Tommy where we, when we were meeting in person and future Tommy. Um, and I got some sketches and stuff. I'm going to draw some stuff out and, and sort of like teach some literary devices and some ideas this morning that I think are fascinating, that I think help us understand um, our role in the church and, and, and how we're to read the text. Um, so uh, let's do this. Let's read this passage and then let's pray. Shall we? Let's read. Verse seven, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and did not eat or drink anything in Damascus. There was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him, uh, called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Israel. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the, uh, to the house and entered, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay, um, let's open with a word of prayer. And then we're going to start at verse 15 and sort of we're going to do a chunk. And then we're going to go back to the beginning to get some, uh, uh, maybe a better view of this passage. Let's pray. Father, Wherever we are, we gather in one heart, in one mind. Though we are not yet one body, I, I, uh, I ask that you would sustain us during this time as we, as we plan our, uh, our path forward to coming back together, as we plan um, how to effectively minister to each other, meet each other's needs in this time, and meet the needs of our community. I pray that you would be in the midst of all of that, that you would guide us, give us uh, your wisdom, Give us your strength and your power. Give us the ability to understand what you're doing. Let us see the part that we play in it. May this be a time of healing. May we somehow take part in it. I pray right now that as I speak to these people, that you would speak through me, be present with me. Help me to remember everything that I've studied here. Thank you, Father, for this time of awakening, for this time of soul searching, for this time of seeking and understanding. Reveal yourself to us, God, in your name. Amen. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with Paul's mission in verse 15, because there's something fascinating that happens here that changes everything. Here we go. 
The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. Now, I'm going to spend a lot of my time this morning right here because this verse is the key, uh, I think, to understanding everything that Paul does, everything that Paul ever says, everything he ever writes. Um, and I think this verse is ignored, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an incredible key to unlock Paul's writings and what Paul is doing. And it can help us see through a lot of the ways that we sort of get confused by Paul. Um, I hear sometimes, I hear people who have deconstructed people who use the phrase um, ex-evangelical and stuff like that. I hear them talk about Paul in certain ways uh, and they kind of brutalize Paul oftentimes with their words. They say that Paul's a, uh, they describe Paul as a misogynist, uh, as a racist, as um, uh, I've had many people over the years that I know in my life, even just say flat out, I disagree with Paul here and I disagree with Paul here and I disagree with Paul here. Um, I think the problem is, um, that they read Paul as if they're reading everyone else in the Bible. Okay. Paul is unique. Paul is different. Paul is doing something else. Paul was not called for the same reason everyone else was called. Uh, Paul was not sent to do the same thing that everyone else is doing. What Paul is doing is unique. And if you understand what he's doing in his context, it unlocks Paul to be this brilliant thinker who was able to bring two racially divided sides together over and over and over again. And he uses all kinds of amazing tactics and literary devices to do this. And some of this I'm going to show you when we get to the book of Romans. Um, uh, for now, I'll just, I'm going to stick right here for a second and talk about what Paul is doing. In verse 15, it tells us, Luke tells us uh, why Paul is chosen, uh, why he's being brought in. God says specifically, Paul is going to be the one to bring the Gentiles into my people. Now, we oftentimes take for granted the fact that up until this very moment, there is not a single non-Jewish Christian in the world up until the time Paul falls off his donkey. All right. Paul falling off his donkey is the major marker um, for a shift in what God is doing in the world. Until this moment, there is not a single non-Jewish Christian. Okay. Um, every single person that has come to Christ has come through Judaism. The Samaritans, uh, they have been coming to Christ in the last, in, in chapter eight, but the Samaritans have Jewish blood. They are the cousins of the Jewish people. They started there. Um, and then they came into the church. They were included once they were of one mind again. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch, sure. He was a Gentile, but he was a Jewish convert. So he became a convert first. And then he came in to the church. Um, not a single Gentile Christian exists in the church in this timeline where we're at. Um, not a single person who comes directly, not, not a single person has is in the church that has come from directly from another religion into the faith without first going through Judaism and then into the faith. Um, this is important to understand because it was believed at this time that the only way to get into the church was through Judaism, that this is the only way uh, you had to assimilate. Um, and that becomes a struggle for a lot of Paul's writings. A lot of Paul's writings are dealing with that and helping people awaken to the fact that, no, 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 no. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. You don't have to do the whole Jewish rigmarole thing any longer. Um, and there's oftentimes some confusion on the role of Paul in Christianity. Uh, I hear people sometimes say pejoratively uh, things like uh, Paul invented Christianity. 
Um, or some will say that he, that the reason Paul was sent was to lay out the rules for how the church should function. A lot of people read Paul like a rule book for the church or how churches should function. So they go straight to Paul and they say, here's what Paul says. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, and some will say that Paul was sent to explain how salvation works, how Paul is explaining that, like, see, it's salvation by grace through faith. And Paul is the one sent to explain all this. Um, and there's all these random ideas about what Paul is doing. But Luke is clear, and Paul reinstates this over and over and over again. Paul has one particular mission in the church, Gentile inclusion, okay? Uh, for instance, here's what happens. Sometimes there's, there's two different ways that you can read instructions for the church in the Bible for how to be the church, okay? There's a, there's a large swath of the church that goes straight to Paul when they're trying to figure out what the church is and what the church should do. Uh, they go to Paul and they read Paul's instructions about who should do what and how the system of government should be set up and how it should function. And this seems like a normal thing to do if Paul, you believe Paul is doing the same thing that all the other writers in the text are doing. Um, and that would typically be sort of the reformed view. Um, even Eastern and Western Catholics go straight to Paul when they're trying to figure out how to like organize the church. Um, their ecclesial, this is the Greek word for church, they're in gathering, their ecclesial model basically centers on Paul. Now, there's another way, though, to figure out what the church is doing that a whole other swath of Christianity uses. Um, it is not to go to Paul. It is instead to go to the book of Acts. And this is kind of what I do. I go to the book of Acts. Um, and when you go to the book of Acts, what you see is something different. You, you read about the forming of the church um, in a way that is egalitarian of all people who were there together and the spirit falls on all of them and they are all equal and they all lead and they all speak and it's inclusive. It's very different. Okay. There's different ways, like ways to form your theology of how the church should function. Some go straight to Paul, some go to Acts. Okay. Um, and the ones that are going to Acts, these will be like your Anabaptists, your Messianic Jews, um, uh, or uh, I, there's several different, pretty much everything, everyone in the holiness movement, um, charismatics, Pentecostal, stuff like that. Um, and so inherently, here's what happens. One group, the group that goes straight to Paul, uh, they tend to be very restrictive in how the church should function. Um, they point out that Paul appears to be silencing women here and there and there. So women can't be in leadership. Um, and then they apply that to all the churches as if Paul is giving instructions for everyone. And then the other group goes to the book of Acts, Luke and Acts, uh, the first church that expresses gender equality and inclusion, and they apply that to all the churches. So both of them are going to their source and applying it to all the churches. And the difference is how they view the role of Paul in the church. If you get Paul out of place in his role, uh, everything changes. So we have to put Paul in the right place. Okay. Um, some people even try to interpret Jesus through the lens of Paul. This happens more than you would understand, more than you would realize. You may be even doing this yourself. You ask them questions like, um, did Jesus, and this is an important question, I want you to think about this, did Jesus teach salvation by grace through faith? Did Jesus teach that? Um, and... Uh, a lot of times they will try to make the argument that Jesus did because in their minds, Jesus and Paul are doing the same thing. Um, and the unspoken and underlying idea here is that if Jesus 
that, that you will all oftentimes find when you ask this question is oftentimes people will try to explain how Jesus was teaching salvation by grace through faith. Um, just like Paul, and they'll say basically like, and if, if Jesus didn't, then Jesus would be wrong because Paul says this, okay? And Jesus must be read through the lens of Paul. Now, the problem is um, you have passages like Matthew seven twenty one, like I'll put it up here. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who sent me. So Jesus several times, and it's not just this, there's like five other verses where Jesus clearly says, you're gonna be judged by your works. Um, and this is a problem. Unless you understand that Jesus and Paul have different ministries and have different reasons for doing what they're doing. Jesus' audience is Jewish. They already had faith in God through the covenant. They didn't believe that they were saved by their works. They believed that they were saved through the covenant and the works came afterwards to assist them in adhering to the covenant. Okay. Um, they also, um, they needed to hear how about how God had been faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness. And they needed to learn how to align themselves with what God was doing um, because they had failed over and over and over. So Jesus shows up and show Jesus is how they will know that God is faithful. And now they must trust that Jesus is part, put their faith in this. And this is part of the covenant, but Jesus is doing something different. Okay. I don't want to confuse everybody here, but Paul and Jesus have different messages because there's different audiences. Okay. Notice Jesus. I want to point this out. Jesus never once brought a single Gentile to be his disciple. Not once. You don't see Jesus ever bringing Gentiles to follow him unless they are, they are Jewish converts first, okay? No one comes straight out of Judaism and follows Jesus. That comes later with Paul, okay? I want you to get this in. I'm going to beat the dead horse. I want you to understand this. In Acts 9, Luke tells us that Paul's ministry is different than those of every other apostle in the church and even different from that of Christ's. Um, Paul wasn't sent to write the New Testament. That's not why Paul came. Paul wasn't sent to tell us how the church should function. Paul wasn't sent to give all kinds of laws for how the church should function. And he wasn't sent to strictly tell everyone how to go to heaven. Paul's ministry is about Gentile inclusion, including the Gentiles, bringing them into the people of God. And so let me frame it like this. Let me give you sort of a, a, an example of, of this in the real world. You. You wouldn't read someone who was doing urban renewal work, right? Like lots of people working inner cities, renewal, um, restoration, trying to help people climb out of poverty. Um, but if you're working for like the advocacy of indigenous people, you're not going to go to the urban renewal person and take their writings and their methods and go to these people and apply those things. It's two different worlds. They're doing different things, different audiences, but the work is all renewal, right? Um, you can't just take the advice of one or the rules and apply it to the other, okay? In the same way, Paul's ministry was explicitly about incorporation of the Gentiles into the church, and everything that Paul write, writes needs to be seen through that light, okay? Paul should not be read in a vacuum. When you, you can't just read it and think that he's doing the same thing as the gospel writers. You're reading com completely different things. So, um, Paul, in his own writings, in Romans 10, 14, um, he tells us about his own ministry. He has this verse that he quotes from, uh, from Isaiah 52. Um, I'll read you what Paul says in Romans 10, 14. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Okay, now, this is the they and the them, that is Gentiles. 
And Isaiah is Jewish and Isaiah is talking about the Gentiles. And Isaiah basically has a prophecy here that says that one day someone will go to the Gentiles. A prophet will go to them and bring them in. Okay. Paul believes Isaiah is talking about himself. Paul believes Isaiah is talking about Paul. Paul believes he is the one who has the beautiful feet that is going to the Gentiles to bring them in. This is how we must read him. This person is himself. And so that is how we will read Paul for the rest of the book of Acts. That's why I want to drill this into your head. When we read the book of Acts, when we read about Paul, you will see he's doing something different. When we get to the book of Romans, you will see this and it will be eye-opening, I think. Um, Paul's main concern with most of his writings are what happens when we bring Jews and Gentiles together into the church? What are the racial tensions? How does Paul approach them? If Gentiles are brought in and Gentiles are elevated and the Jews were already here and the Gentiles are brought in and the Jews are brought up to equal stance as the Gentiles, uh, the Gentiles are bring, brought into equal stance as the Jews and the Jews suddenly don't feel special anymore. What happens in the church? Um, does that mean they have lost their, their status or their worth? Um, and Paul addresses these things because when you form equality in a community, in a society. Those who have been on top struggle with that big time. It's a difficult thing for them to accept. Paul writes a lot about this. Do you see how applicable Paul's message is to our own day? It will be incredibly applicable when we get to the book of Romans. Um, and when Paul elevates the Gentiles, suddenly the Jews feel like they, they're not special. They feel like they don't matter anymore. But elevating and fully including one group in every area of leadership in the church doesn't mean that the Jews will get less. It actually means that the Jews will get more, more family, more wisdom, more perspective, more spiritual wealth. They just don't see it yet. And Paul is going to make sure that they see it when he starts his work. Okay. A lot of the New Testament is about dealing with what happens to those who already belong. What we would say, if we're looking at this in terms of like the prodigal son, those who already belong, uh, what happens to them when you bring in the others that they have never included and they have never equally loved, okay? The Jewish Christians wanted the Gentile converts when they come in to assimilate to Jewish laws, to Jewish customs, to be circumcised, to keep the Sabbath. But God never requires that of them. And this upsets them, okay? And a lot of the New Testament is about learning to die to yourself, to pour yourself out so that others can know life, so that they can feel equal, okay? And I cannot think of anything more applicable to today's world than for those in positions of power, the, what Paul will call in Romans, the, the stronger brother. For those in positions of power to pour themselves out for the weaker so that they can be made strong. Um, much of what Paul is doing refers to this work, and he must be read in context. So let's look at this passage now, uh, and let's look at how Ananias responds to the calling of Paul, because this is our first instance of this, and it's very difficult for him, okay? Here we go. Uh, let's read Acts 9, 13 through 15. It says this, um, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, go. All right. The Lord's not having it. The Lord is not letting Ananias say, look, uh, uh, he's got a long rap sheet. He's done a lot of bad stuff in his past. And uh, his blindness, I mean, that's a consequence of his bad behavior, what happened to him. Um, God's not having this, okay? Um, the first reaction that Ananias has is to say, he's got a past, he's literally a murderer, and he is, he's right. His sins are widely known. Everyone knows that this guy, he's got, Saul has, Saul slash Paul has the worst reputation. He's not a good guy. And Jesus says, just go. I have chosen him and you must now go. So because, I mean, God's not concerned with Paul's past. He's not. He's concerned with Paul's present and future. He only sees what Paul is capable of becoming, not what he was. Uh, it, he, he sees the potential. I think this is an important to under, this is important to understand. We oftentimes want people to feel the consequences of, of, of the things that they've done in the past that they've done. But I remind you, there are things in all of our past that should they be brought up would absolutely tarnish your reputation. There are things buried in your history that only you know about. What God is concerned with is the loss of potential of what you could be. Um, and after Ananias pushes back and then God pushes back and says, go, just go. This is what I'm doing. You have no choice in this matter. Ananias, it turns out he adjusts his heart. He makes this choice. Okay. And it's hard to do, but he makes a choice to go to Saul slash Paul and see Saul slash Paul as God does. All right. Is that annoying? Saul slash Paul. Um, and we can, we see a few things. First off, he walks in and he sees Paul and he instantly, he instantly calls him brother. Instantly. I mean, look at the passage. He walks in, he says, brother Saul, right off the bat, seeing your enemy, your adversary as your brother is a choice. It is a choice that Christians are called to make. Um, it, it, it does not come natural. Of course not. It is. Oh man, it's not very pragmatic. It's really not. But it's a command that we have to go to our enemy and see them not as our enemy, but choose to see them as our brothers and our sisters. It's something that we have to decide to do. And I want to show you something here because there's this little literary device um, that if you see it here, you're going to start seeing it in other places. So I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, I've not done this yet during our, our COVID sessions. Um, I'm going to share my screen and uh, it's drawing time. All right. I'm assuming you can see this. Um, I have a, you know, my, my famous stick figure drawings are here. Now um, there are, Lots of literary devices in the Bible, and, and they kind of reveal to you the ancient Mediterranean world and how it works. And I want to show you one of them that is here. There's a literary device here um, that if you pick up here, you're going to see other places. It's called the three zones of personality. And let me explain what it is. In the Mediterranean world, um, they traditionally thought about themselves in terms of three zones that make up the human person. Okay. Do I have a, okay. I'm using red. Um, 
three zones that they believed made up the human person. Okay. Um, the first one is communication. Okay. It is here. It is the things that happen uh, in your head. Uh, it is um, typically referred to as speech, but it's more than just speech. It includes all the activities of the mouth, the ears, the tongue, the lips, the throat, and the teeth. Um, like uh, speaking and hearing and singing and swearing and cursing and, and listening and eloquence and silence and crying out, stuff like that. It's self-revealing activity. Um, it has to do with listening and responding. Okay. This is one area. It's the sort of the communication. Um, the next one is thoughts and emotions that takes place here in the heart. Okay. This is your, uh, it's the activity of the heart, choosing and loving and valuing and understanding stuff like that. Um, it's the will, the intellect, the judgments, the feelings all rolled together into this thing. Okay. Um, and the last one is your external behavior. And that is found here in the things that you do with your body, your hands and your feet, typically. Um, hands, feet, fingers, legs, walking, sitting, standing, touching, accomplishing, stuff like that. Moving, going places, feet carrying you. Um, it has to do with purposeful actions that you do. These three things together, when they are all mentioned, it means that a person means it. And this is how I want you to understand this literary device. When the Bible mentions all three of these things in one passage, it is full alignment of, of a person towards a thing. Okay. Uh, and here's what I mean. Let me back up a little bit here. Um, uh, it is easy to do something with your hands and feet, but not to mean it in your heart or to affirm it with your head. Okay. This is, um, this is like uh, a slave obeying the master. They don't want to. They're forced to. And so it is external behavior. But it is not something they have chosen, and it is not something that they want. Okay? Um, so that is not somebody acting fully out of integrity as one person. Integrity is where we get our word for integer, meaning one. Okay? Um, and Jesus... In Matthew, I believe, 18 or so, chastises the Pharisees um, who confess with their mouth, but they do not mean it with their heart, and their lives do not reflect. Um, their lives do not reflect um, the things that they are saying with their heart. So they're, they're praying loudly, right, for all to hear. But they don't really care about the poor, the oppressed. Um, oftentimes you will see them um, giving, dropping coins in the coffer, right? Um, but their hearts are far from God and their minds are far from God. All right. You will see people going into the temple to confess, um, to confess and supposedly pray and repent. Um, but they are not being penitent with their body and they do not mean it with their heart. The Bible is always railing against people who are not fully one person. Okay. Um, but there are places in the Bible where you're reading the text and it mentions all three and it is talking to the follower of Christ, talking to the member of the church and instructing them on how they are to follow God. You have passages like John 1, 1. I'll put the text up here for you. Uh, it says, uh, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, 
Okay. What we have seen with our eyes, that's again, it's all in the head. This is, this is the head part. This is the communication part. What we have seen, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands uh, concerning the words of life. Okay. Um, and then he goes on to talk about, they believe it. They mean it with everything that they have. Okay. Um, he's talking about themselves and how, they don't just confess something. They have aligned their entire life with it. Matthew 6, when we get to the... Um, a, a lot of times in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you at some point maybe this week to read through Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through chapter 7. Look for all the places that Jesus does this, where he points out um, all the ways that they are to align their entire body with the things of God. In verse uh, Matthew chapter 6, you'll see in verse 20, it talks about how where your heart is, your treasure will be. And it talks about your eyes being full of light, two verses later. And then two verses after that, it talks about serving only one master. It talks about your entire being coming into alignment with the things of God, not just your mouth, okay? And this is where we kind of screw up sometimes is we're trying to get people to pray a prayer and mentally ascend to an idea. And we think that somehow they have done something and they have somehow become a follower of Jesus when they specifically have not. They've simply confessed with their mouth that they follow Christ. But faith is more than a confession. It is more than a belief. Faith is not belief. Faith is allegiance. Faith is the alignment of all of who you are to one thing, the entire self being aligned. Okay, um, so if we look at this passage at Acts chapter 9, let's bring it back to Ananias. Ananias is devoted. Ananias is one of the early Jewish Christians. Ananias um, has allegiance to King Jesus. And if we look at verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 17 through 18, it says this, that Ananias, he went to the house, right? And he entered it and he placed his hands again on Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me to you uh, that you may see again and be filled with the Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And it starts with the fact that he believes he has been following all along the things of Christ. And out of this belief flows all the other actions of his life. It all works in tandem Together, we have all of it being mentioned in Acts chapter 9. So, his entire self is aligned, and the audience knows this. And it changed not only Paul, but his alignment to the things of God brought Paul in and ended up changing the entire world, because this brought about the inclusion of the Gentiles, all right? His entire self aligned. So, there is no room in Christianity for simply agreeing or accepting an idea. The response that God is requiring is much, much more. It is an alignment of the entirety of yourself. It is allegiance. This is what God is calling us to. Much of the modern church, let's change pages here. If I flip over here. Much of the modern church is simply built on gathering, okay, at a church service, Okay, um, and we come and we stand adjacent to the church service and we apply the things that we heard from the church service into our life. 
and we we have different places in our life where we maybe we need encouragement, maybe we need a little bit of hope, where we need a better marriage, where we need um, maybe help on um, on a little bit of prosperity. We're trying to find some way to make a little more money. We have dreams, and the pastor will say, "What are your dreams? What are your hopes?" Um, we can help you accomplish those things, okay? And the church becomes this thing that is constantly um, being just picked up in little pieces applied here and there. And we ask questions like, how can I apply this to my life? Um, how can we be happier, better, healthier, more meaningful and, and beautiful? Um, and it's something that if something isn't great, we apply a little bit of the Bible to that thing and we make it better. However, the church, what it actually was doing in the first century, it was not a service. It was not just a gathering. It was a body, a people. And their whole entire purpose there uh, was to take their life and to find it in Christ, in the body of Christ, so that their life begins to cease to exist and the body of Christ begins to grow. Um, and their life begins to fall away. And what they do is they begin to align. They, it, it's opposites, right? They're not simply applying the Bible to their lives. They are applying their lives to the body of Christ. They are aligning themselves with the path of Jesus. It requires a complete alignment of the whole thing. Every part to this brand new kingdom that they suddenly have become aware of that exists. And they never go back to their old lives again. All of that falls away. Not only does it fall away and they reject it, but then they condemn it. The ways of the path that God has called them out of. They condemn, they look back and they repent of completely, collectively. Not just the things that they have done, the things that their ancestors have done. And they condemn, they repent of those things. Because even though it is not their sin that their ancestors have done, it is their responsibility to not bring it into the future. Okay. Um, and this is what they are doing. So in fact, um, they never go back to their old lives. Again, they're always moving forward. If you have ever been to uh, a church that does an altar call, maybe you grew up in a church that did an altar call. I did. Um, and I grew up seeing altar calls constantly. Uh, it kind of looks like this. If you don't know what an altar call is, there's, um, the pastor will finish his sermon with a moving story or whatever, and they will have everyone bow your heads and close your eyes, fold your hands in your lap and, and, and sort of close your eyes. And then he will go into the invitation section of the altar call. If I, I'm going to lead you through a prayer, if you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, I'm going to pray this prayer. And then they will ask, if you prayed that prayer, please raise your hand. And at some point, hands actually do begin to go up because people are hungry for the things of Christ. And they begin to make decisions. Yes, I, I prayed this prayer. I, I, you know, and they will. Uh, after that will come the invitation to come forward. They'll have everybody who prayed that prayer stand up and I want you to come forward. And usually they're coming forward um, to talk and to pray some more and to understand the decision that they have just made and mentally ascend and learn how to believe in this thing. Now, where did this come from? Um, it's relatively new. I'm not saying it's wrong at all. Um, but we should know where stuff comes from and part, the part that it has played in church history. It's relatively new. Neither Calvin nor Luther ever once gave an invitation. Uh, in fact, the way that they brought people into the church was they baptized babies right into the church. That is how you were converted. Um, but when did this start? That is a great question. Uh, it's an important question. Well, in fact, it started um, with the abolitionist movement. 
It started with um, preaching the gospel and making it clear what this means for the world, the complete restructuring of all earthly powers in light of what we now have seen in Christ and the things of Christ and what it means for the world. And then the preacher would give an invitation, the abolitionist preacher. But it was never just an invitation to come and simply pray a prayer for any kind of personal salvation. Uh, instead, it was an invitation to come forward and sign your name to join the abolitionist movement so that you could bring not personal salvation to yourself, not just that, but communal salvation to the entire world. And so you would come forward and you would sign your name on the list to become an abolitionist and take part in the freeing and liberation of all enslaved people, enslaved not just in soul and spiritual bondage, but also in body and in mind and in heart, in all of it. They took part in uh, helping um, alcoholics get free of their addictions. They took part in all of it, in freeing the slaves and bringing uh, equality to the world. It is something much, much different. Okay, uh, the invitation was always intended to be an alignment of everything that you are with the things of Christ. The invitation was never meant to be, um, what is, here's something going bad in my life. How can I just read the Bible and apply that verse to what I'm going through? No, 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 no. Apply your life to the text. Don't apply the text to your life. Apply your life to the text. Organize your life around the teachings of Christ. Read Matthew 5 through 7 over and over and over and ponder the weight, the sheer weight of what Jesus is saying. For Paul, for both Paul and Ananias, um, faith was the same. In light of what they found in Jesus, they destroyed their old lives and they rebuilt their entire existence around the things of Jesus. Okay? It was a choice that they made with their holistic self. There was no room for just belief. It was an alignment. It was allegiance. It was all of it. And you will see this in the scriptures. Do not choose one author of the Bible and try to use that guy to form your entire theology of anything. Get a holistic view of the whole thing and see all the different ways, all the different writers and authors that have been brought to the table and see how the question they are being asked is, what is salvation in your context? What is salvation in your context? What is salvation in your context? And all of these authors are talking about what it means to free people who are enslaved in all these different ways in light of our new King Jesus and the world that he is building. All right. And with that, grab your communion elements. If you have them, if you have uh, your wine, or your juice um, and your bread or your, if you're me, all I got left is tortilla. I'm going with it though. Um, I apologize to the high church people watching this who are really upset with me right now. I'm doing the best I can. Um, there are two elements in communion. There is wine, which symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for you and for me and for all those, um, seeking new life and restoration. There is the body of Christ, which symbol, uh, there's the bread, which symbolizes the body of Christ broken for all those um, who needs healing and salvation and renewal and restoration. We do this to remember what Jesus did so that we can remember that this is how salvation enters into the world. A body of Christ 
broken and poured out for the world around us. And so do this in remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice that he made for us. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ poured out for you. Father, we look to you, the light that leads the path forward. You are the one, the only king, the only shepherd that we have that can bring healing to this world. Every other world leader, every prime minister, every emperor, every king, every president is a mere caricature of the reality of what you are. And I ask that you would right now fill us with your spirit and guide us forward. Help us to uh, be the body of Christ broken and poured out for the world around us. In your name, amen. And so uh, let's end today with our Kalak prayer, shall we? God, who reconciles all things to yourself, who came to dwell among us, teach us to love as you have loved. May we let go of the lies embedded in us and replace them with your truth. May we be bold in protecting the weak, speaking for the voiceless and standing against injustice wherever it occurs. May we recognize the Imago Dei in others, treating them with dignity and respect. Help us to forgive freely, reconciling us to each other. In a chaotic world, let us bring peace, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. Love you all. I miss you all. No doubt we'll begin to see you soon. Grace and peace.